Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. In our guest's own words, I grew up hating America. I lived in the Soviet Union and was a child of the Cold War. Well, 30 years later, Vitaly Katzenelson is an inveterate capitalist, CIO of Investment Management Associates in Denver. You can read his columns in Institutional Investor. He's authored two books, Active Value Investing and The Little Book of Sideways Markets. Forbes, no less, has put him in league with the greatest investors of our generation. Even bigger, and take note here, my mother-in-law reads Vitaly. More on that later. So take that, communism. Capitalism has prevailed. Vitaly, welcome to Full Disclosure. Robert, it's my pleasure. Oh. I, I'm very popular with mother-in-laws. That's my <laughs> specialty. Well, this is a, you know, I have to say, uh, you know, I, I thought that she had, it was one of the, you know, Boca Raton boiler room newsletters, pink sheets, penny stock things that the mother-in-laws or my mother would invariably want me to read. But then I actually picked you up and, uh, wow, uh, you are very thoughtful and you're all over the place. You can opine on markets, the Fed, um, your homeland and how is it tr- it's transmogrified under Putin. So I really was interested in kind of having you here today on Full Disclosure because you can cast this wide net and you're one of the more thoughtful writers about everything that we see in the news right now. I just want to know, I- I- long and short, how did you get here? You yourself said that you grew up really uh, buying what uh, Soviet Russia was selling you in terms of propaganda. Next thing you know, you're you're helping manage and advise money in Colorado. You're a certified financial analyst. Um, well, so my family moved from uh, Murmansk, Russia, uh, to the United States in 1991. Um, the story started actually about 11, year, 11 years earlier. My aunt, uh, my father's youngest sister, left Russia. And uh, at the time, she said that she told the, American, uh, the US, uh, Russian government that she was going to Israel. And um, as most immigrants, this was 1979, most, as most immigrants at the time, she uh, landed in Rome, went to American embassy and said, I would like to come to the United States instead of going to Israel. And uh, that's how she ended up on Brighton Beach. So when you watch Moscow on Hudson, she was probably, you know, <laughs> that movie's about her for the most part. Um, but anyway, so, she, so when she invited us to the United States in 1981, just if, if you know, well, for, okay, let me start there. So until 1987, I did not know that my aunt lives in the United States. I think 1987, my fa- you know, for eight or nine years, I thought my, my, my aunt and my cousins lived in Siberia. My parents were basically lying to me for a long, long time because they were afraid if somebody finds out that, you know, that my relative lives in the United States, it's going to ruin, you know, our lives. Um the funny part is this, when my father told me that my aunt lives in, in, in the United States, and this is not exaggeration, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, she's a spy. It's, it's silly. It's, it's, you, know, I, you know, when I think about it now, it's kind of, it's silly. But at the time, we were brainwashed so much about how horrible Americans are, that we were just basically, it was kind of an innate kind of a feeling to hate Americans. You were telling I mean, me just, that well. You, know, you were you were telling me that well into you know six or seven years of getting here, you got to the United States in 1991. You still had this this kind of innate paranoia or distrust toward Americans. Oh no 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 no. So <laughs> no. Um, 
what what happened was this in 1988. This is so so I got here in 1991. So this is 1987. I see. Not, not 97, 1987. Now, in 1988, what, uh, what started to happen in Russia, this little movie theaters popped up all over uh, all over Soviet Union, basically. And what it was like, imagine an apartment building, and in the basement, you would have a huge room that has five or six TVs connected to a VCR. And they would show American movies, dubbed by the same guy, horrible, horrible, you know... Uh, uh, Dubbed by Yakov Smirnov, I imagine. <laughs> probably, probably. And you know what happened, actually? One of the movies that really showed America from a very different light was Moscow and Hudson. It showed a very, very different America. And uh, Robin Williams did a terrific job. And, you know, you, you watch enough American movies, you realize, you know, these people are not hateful. You know, they don't, you know, they don't hate... You know, they're not trying to, you know, they're not trying to kill Russians. They're not trying to, you know. So I say, actually, let me tell you this very true story. This is 1982. I'm uh, in a pioneer camp. We are in Leningrad, or now what's called Saint Petersburg, on a field trip. This guy comes up to me, and gives me bubble gum. Who was I don't know. He I don't know if he was American or German. It didn't matter. You know, maybe he liked my smile. I have no idea. So he gives me this gum. My teacher sees that. She she you know takes it out of my hands and throws it out and she says it's it's probably poisoned. That was the mentality of Russian people. That's what they how, how you know that's what they felt towards Westerners. Vitaly, so, what was your what was your turning point? What was the moment where you saw outside of that cave and said, "Gosh, maybe it's not uh, so horrible between us." I think it's actually honestly, I think it's a kind of American movies. You know, you never think that you know Hollywood kind of changed the way people look at the world, but it really did. I mean, I think. Watching American movies in this kind of underground movie theaters has changed perception, not just mine, but everybody else's. Uh, so you got to see yeah. Moscow in the Hudson in the seedy little basement in Russia with yeah. Robin Williams, what, circa 1984, hoarding toilet paper. I mean, it was it was bizarre. You know, he was skeptical of the other people uh, on the bus with him and, and people who were defecting in that scene. I remember the department store in New York, and that was a really eye-opening moment for you. Well, no, it's just, it wasn't that. You know what it was? It was the people that worked in the department store. They were just normal people. I mean, there was like, there was no, this kind of embedded hate. There was, there were just normal people. There were normal lives. There was no, you know, it just, it, they just showed normal people that don't want to kill us. You well, know, Vitaly, don't want to nuke us. Yeah. talk to me about your uh, landing in the United States. What was that like? What were your first impressions? 1991? Uh <laughs> That's a good question. Um, well, this is gonna sound a little bit funny, but uh, I was, you know, we landed in, uh, I think, uh, either Love, uh, JFK probably, and uh, I never saw that many black people at once. <laughs> I know this is gonna, this is gonna, you know, in, you know, in Russia, I probably maybe throw all my life, I maybe saw only five black people. <laughs> so that was kind of, that was, you know, that was kind of new, um, and. Uh, you know, and then American food tasted weird. Uh, pizza, you know, everything had a kind of, you know, very different taste at first. And then you get used to it. Uh, you know, we, I barely spoke English. So, uh, and also what I realized when we, when I was in high school, we studied uh, British, which is very, as you probably don't realize, but it's very different from American English because British people speak in, uh, in in words, and Americans speak in sentences. So, 
when I heard people speak, I couldn't I couldn't even decipher a single word because they all kind of mushed together, were mushed together. So it took me probably a few months before I could I could separate words and you know, sentences. And did you settle uh, down in the New York area originally? No, we actually spent about a day in New York, and then we just changed flights. We stayed overnight in New York, and then flew to Denver. That was and uh, so I spent all my all my life basically living in that De- you know all my American life living in Denver. It's not a bad scene. I actually say it beats a lot of New York City. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, yeah. tell me then how. Uh, so the jump start to the next point. Uh, you you studied finance in university in Denver. Yes. And you became a CFA. Yeah. Yes. You know I went. You know, you know, I tried and changed maybe five majors, and then I discovered finance, and I loved it. And so I changed my what did major. You, what did you love about it? Um, well, I actually didn't like finance as much. I love investing. Um, what I loved about investing is that every day you come to work, you try to make the best decision you make, you know, you can, and then you can, you know, you can find out if you're right or not, you know, and it's a... Um, I liked the intellectual part of it. I like, you know, the analysis part of it. Uh, and I also like that I can learn about so many different things. So it's kind of a, I can learn on very different subjects. And uh, so I guess that's probably what I love the most about it. Was there someone in university who reached out to you who opened you to the world of investing? Because certainly academic finance versus, you know, the stock tables and valuation and Graham and Dodd is a whole different beast. Were you reading the Wall Street Journal? Were you watching CNBC? How did it How did it dawn on you? Actually, you know what's kind of interesting? I think university probably did more disservice to me than helped. Um, I realized that I like investing because I got a job at an investment firm by accident. I was very good with computers, and they hired me to just do computer stuff. And uh, I think I got the love for investing there. And uh, I think university probably helped me, but also did disservice because, uh, you know, all the stuff I learned about investing, which was modern portfolio theory, etc., ended up being a waste of time. And uh, so I had, you know, I had to go out in real world and learn what investing is about. Uh, but uh, I, I would argue that, you know, most universities hurt their students by what they teach and don't help. So tell me, you know, port this to the conversation about Russia, which had a really rocky transmogrification from, uh, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the potential coup in 1991 to uh, Boris Yeltsin's reign, and finally when he's teetering and there's the currency crisis and mm-hmm. uh, the country being divvied up to the hands of many oligarchs, uh, to what we have today with Vladimir Putin. Obviously, it was a different era. Oil uh, traveled from, I think, $10 a barrel in 1998 when uh, Yeltsin collapsed to something north of $140 by 2008. And this really swelled uh, the coffers of Russia and, and the revanchism and the national pride. And now you see Putin emboldened all over again. And you've written about this. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let me preface it that I'm not an expert in Russia. I really am not because I, I follow Russia maybe just a little bit more than average American does. Um, my kind of recent experience with Russia started when uh, I couldn't understand how uh, Russian people would look at an invasion of uh, Ukraine and not do anything about it. So. I started to watch Russian TV, which is something I haven't watched for 20, you know, 20 plus years, to try to understand, you know, you know what they, you know, 
try to understand how Russian people think. And you, now, you wrote you know, for I.I. Not... that you went on a TV of just, you went on a diet of just Russian TV for a whole week. Yes, exactly. So I just, for one week, I basically just watched Russian TV. And what I basically learned is that, like, when we look at Russians, we basically, not, not today, and we think, well, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, you know, they're sending tanks there, etc., and, you know, supplying uh, weapons, you know, all those things. That's And uh, that's not the picture that Russians see. What they see is that the coup, you know, in Ukraine was basically sponsored by the United States. They see that Ukraine is overrun by fascists that are killing Russians, and Ukrainian nationalists, they're killing Russians that live in Ukraine. And they look at themselves as a kind of a, um, well, first of all, you know, they believe, you know, the you know, official government line that there is no Russian troops, there are no Russian troops in, in Ukraine. And if there are, they're on, a, on leave, you know, and they're not really employed by, you know, by Russian government. Um, and so Russians view that conflict in Ukraine is it's almost like a, they're a, kind of a Cold War kind of again, you know, relived again. So in the, it's kind of their war against the United States trying to subjugate Russia through Ukraine. Well, what I don't understand, uh, Vitaly, you know, is this when, when the Iron Curtain came down and communism fell and, uh, you know, the, the, the value proposition of uh, Soviet Russia really collapsed in everybody's eyes. And there was that brief window where they got to experience something like a freer press. How come it didn't inculcate a skepticism toward this kind of propaganda? How is it? I was struck in reading your essay that so many mm -hmm. people... Are, are kind of starry-eyed for Putin. They will march in the streets for him, not like you know he's he's uh, Kim Il, you know Kim Jong Un or anything like that. But there is this this passion for a charismatic leader, and uh, uh, you know overlook the fact that a handful of billionaires own the country now, and it was uh, rife with corruption. You have somebody who's thumbing his nose at the rest of the world, and that alone has rallied the country more than anything else. Well, actually, you're asking a great question, and. Uh, that's what That's I do. Why, That's I what fine. I do for a living. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, so here, here is the, there are probably several answers to that. Number one, uh, Putin controls the press. So in other words, the Kremlin, so the, uh, uh, the free press is dead in Russia for the most part. Uh, all the TV, the majority of the TV stations and newspapers are owned by the government. So what the message people see consistent through all media is basically crafted by Kremlin. That's point number one. Point number two, um, when I took a marketing class, the only thing I remember out of marketing class, for people to remember a message, they have to hear it six times. They hear the same message on all channels hundreds of times a day. So if you amplify it by 365 days a year, Russian people basically, for the most part, brainwashed. Um, that's point number one. Point number two, I think it's a you know, there is some Russian mentality where basically, where Americans are fairly uh, skeptical towards their politicians, Russians idolize their leaders. I mean, it's just you know the and uh, and uh, I think Russians uh, maybe it's a kind of Tsar mentality. But I think they idolize Putin and uh, as, and look at him almost almost like a superhuman to some degree. And I'm generalizing; not everybody does. Well, let it, me let me ask let me ask you then: Does the does the uh, helium come out of this giant balloon as oil prices continue to tank? I mean, we saw that's what brought the country to its knees. That's what brought an instability and humility 
1998. Uh, what is the cry uncle point for Putin and the rest of the country in terms of its huge correlation to the price of crude? Well, and this is where it's going to get interesting because the Putin's popularity today is at uh, probably multi multi year high because he redirected, you know, using, you know, he redirected. He used the uh, conflict in Ukraine and Crimea, etc., as his way to redirect attention from the crisis uh, to, uh, on the political you know, level. You know, basically, what is happening in Russia today is caused by the United States. That's the message you hear um, you know, on, the, on the Russian TV. So, therefore, uh, even you, you, you may even hear that oil, you know, collapse of oil prices was engineered by the United States as well, by the way. So... Today, it's you know, you know, the support for Putin is probably at multi multi year high because there was a perception that the United States has caused it. Not the not the the fact that uh, Russia has a very weak economy that's basically tied to oil prices. That's no, you know, it's a really the message is shaped as if United States and the West, but mostly United States, has caused this crisis with sanctions, etc. We're talking to Vitaly Katzenelson who is CIO of Investment Management Associates in Denver. You can read his columns in Institutional Investor. Forbes raves about him, and my mother-in-law raves about him. Uh, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Vitaly Katzenelson, uh, talk to us about the unprecedented uh, froth right now in markets. You've written about this with a lot of frustration as a value investor who prefers to buy um, you know, hairy assets, uh, uh, certain dogs with uh, they have to have a minimum number of fleas, as it were. Right now, we've seen a period in the United States, at least, um, you know, going back to the epicenter of the financial crisis at the end of 2008, where markets have not had a correction for the longest time. The Federal Reserve has kept interest rates at next to nothing since December of 2008. They constantly punt on when they're going to take up rates again, even though quantitative easing has been taken back in bits. Uh, but we don't seem to have any visibility on how well markets would do if this kind of Fed stimulus, including, by the way, $4 trillion almost of quantitative easing were to be pulled away. Now, what do you think? Uh, I think we kind of turned into a Lance Armstrong economy where, like, if, I, if, I, if, if you were to if you were to think about, you know, going back to, you know, 15, you know, 10 years and ask, is Lance Armstrong a good athlete? You know, is he really, really good? And you don't really know, right? Because, you know, a lot of his wins uh, in the past were because he took steroids. So when you look at today's, uh, today's economy and today's stock market, we don't really know how good is the performance of our, our economy truly is because we have taken so many, you know, we've been basically pumped an uh, enormous amount of steroids. We got to pump so, you uh, up, like the old line in SNL. Exactly. That no, just went over your head. That's okay. It has nothing to do with you. Uh, but, that's, that's, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> well, isn't it, isn't it effectively a transfer of wealth, right? You conjure up money as the Bernanke Fed and now the Janet Yellen Fed, and you keep a floor under real estate prices, but you also pump it into fixed income, which is still on the tail end of a huge 30-year bull market. And, and stock prices, you've had something like $15 trillion of market capitalization. You know, if you're the, have added to the market since their bottom, if you're the Federal Reserve, you're thinking, I get significant multiplier effect, bang for my buck, by uh, at least uh, symbolically propping up the stock market. 
Well, so that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great point. It's only transfer of wealth if the stock prices stay where they are, right? But I think it's actually what it, what really worries me is that how many people, how are, if the stock prices are artificially lifted and the bond prices are artificially lifted, at some point they're really just down. And, and um, a lot of people have been forced into owning the riskier assets than they would otherwise. And just think about this for a second. If you are if you are if you are a retired person and you are and you need a fixed income. So in the past you would be buying maybe five year treasuries. Now five year treasuries yield nothing. So you're forced into buying junk bonds and maybe junk bonds, you know, 10, 15 year junk bonds. At some pro at some point when things readjust, you're gonna have a lot of people losing their money, losing their shirt because they were forced into buying much riskier assets than they should. So in other words, what really worries me is uh, not transfer of wealth today, but uh, but transfer I guess loss of that wealth, you know, years down the road. Well, the criticism has been that a lot of people do not have an institutional memory of a bear market in bonds. That there was a hit in 1994. Uh, you know, where Wall Street got hit and the Greenspan Fed had to come in and, and hike rates earlier than planned coming out of the early 90s recession and the SNL crisis. But now there isn't much of an institutional memory on bond desks and certainly not with investors sure. when you look at the amount of flows into bond funds and the willingness to espouse, uh, you know, to, to loan to companies for just a few points. Companies can loan to you for just a few points. I heard a great phrase when somebody called it, today when you invest in bonds, you get a return-free risk, and that's exactly what you get. But you know, anybody who was skeptical about bond market for the last five years were wrong, and I say it in quotes because you know, when bonds got it, you know, when you know, when the ten-year treasury got to three percent, you know, you didn't think it could go any lower, and it, you know, now it's lower than that. And uh, guess what? Uh, in the, in Switzerland now they have negative interest rates, so maybe. If when Treasury yields you know, 50 basis points, you know, it's gonna, you know, it's still gonna be, people will still look look at it favorably because, you know, maybe it, maybe it could have a negative interest rate. By so, way of explanation, uh, so when a person puts his money in Swiss government debt, right, he's accepting a loss. Like there's a negative yield, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. That that just illustrates the element of, and I, I think to you know to my next point that we have it good and we have it bad in that. Um, U.S. debt is that redoubt of safety. The dollar is that when things go wrong externally, regardless of how strong our economy is, international investors and governments pile into our credit, and that pushes down yields. Well, and then it, you know it ends up punishing people, uh, but also keeping risk appetites very high in the United States. Almost an unintended consequence. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, the anomaly. And I remember when when the U.S. Uh, government bonds got downgraded by S&P, the U.S. dollar went up. Which, if you just think about it, how there is we li we live in this uh, kind of a Frankenstein world, where everything, you know, like all the asset prices have been completely inflated by you know, by by central banks. And uh, what really worries me, if you just think about it for a second, oil prices declined over 50% in four or five months. Uh, which in a kind of in a, in a somewhat benign economy, that hasn't really happened, you know, historically that often. Uh, then look at the Swiss franc, you know, it went up, it went up 16% in one day. I don't think it ever happened to a developed market currency. So, what I think what we start seeing kind of a, this manifestation of uh, 
this kind of a Frankenstein economy where I think we're going to start seeing a lot more volatility that kind of unexpected volatility, not that we ever expect volatility, but unexpected volatility. And I think, therefore, if you're an investor, this is a time to be very, very conservative, not to be giddy and trying to rush into stocks and, you know, and but actually you know, to be very, very conservative. How can um, you be conservative, though, if the traditional thinking is you park your money in you know, the, the, the safest asset of all, U.S. government debt, and you're saying that is inflated and perilous, too, and people don't realize that they can lose money there? Exactly. I mean, you know, just think about this. If you, know, you want to – let me just, just give you a simple math behind it. If you own a 30-year bond uh, that you, you know, and the interest rates go up 1%, you, you know, your principal would decline at about 20%. So just because, you know, so that's what happens to bonds. So bonds actually, you know, it's, especially if you own long-term bonds, uh, if interest rates go up, bond prices decline. And uh, the long-duration bonds, those bond prices, you know, those prices would decline a lot. So yes, you can lose money in bonds. And just to give an and, idea, uh, the 30-year U.S. government debt right now is yielding what? I don't know, two point something. Or the I, world you know, is willing to loan money to Uncle Sam for thirty years at two point something, right? Let's say two and a half percent. Now you tell me where sure. the United States was thirty years ago, right? I mean, that thirty years is a long time. The world changes, and I think that people, uh, th what what amazes me, it's one thing to take on five year risk or even ten year risk and say I'll bite the bullet and just mm -hmm. accept the yield, but but there's a certain uh, uh, huge complacency in saying that I'm gonna uh, I'm willing to take on generational risk and all sorts of exogenous effects and shocks and maybe hyperinflation can happen and I'm cool with just getting paid two and a half percent. Exactly, and you know the worst mistakes investors make in this environment when they start reaching for yield, um, and that's what you know, and that's what the government forces you to do when they start buying illiquid assets that have a yield, and uh, they just they're attracted by the yield, but they. Um, and the yield becomes this kind of shiny object that detracts the attention from the fact that the asset they are buying may not be worth as much as you know as they're paying for it. And I think invest you know a lot of investors that invested in master limited partnerships that were exposed to oil kind of got that uh, painful medicine over the last six months. Well, talk about oil because that is something where you you have gridlock in Washington D.C. Obviously a Re-energized GOP after the midterm elections does not want to do Barack Obama any favors. There's no sorts of there's no real consensus over a massive fiscal stimulus. Really, to move the economic needle, it's been all about the Federal Reserve since the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. But out of left field, with oil prices getting cut by 50 percent, suddenly a lot of people are paying a buck 80 at the pump, um, and this could continue. I mean, were you were you blindsided as many people were at at the fact that swaths of the United States are now replacing OPEC? Um, well, the you know you kind of aware about shale revolution. Um, I was surprised. The oil, I'll be honest. I'm a, was fairly bearish on oil prices for a long time. You thought they were going to fall. And, uh, you thought they were inflated. Yeah. Yes. But I was I was bearish for a different reason. I you know, I was bearish because I think Chinese economy at some point is going to roll over. The Chinese so, economy will. Yes, and the Chinese being the uh, voracious consumers, they're the ones that that's the that's the big delta, that's the big change. Let's say since 1991 exactly. or their their entry into their 2001, their entry into the World Trade Organization, their huge growth, their their the record numbers of people they're taking out of poverty and into the middle class who want who want cars, who the you know, factories are running at full tilt, that they are the ones who are moving the needle on crude consumption. 
Yeah, I think they were responsible for two thirds of growth in the demand for oil wow. in the past. Yeah, but so but so I thought you know I, we were you know, we were kind of uh, cautious of oil prices because of China, and uh, you know and also one thing you have to understand is this: we think of oil as a necessity, and it is. But you know when the uh, when the economy you know when the economy goes into recession, demand for oil declines because we start to drive less. And people in the, you know, in the, I think I remember in the UK when they went into recession, I think number of miles driven has declined like 5%. Uh, but in the developing countries, they're even more sensitive. Uh, so people start to drive even, even, le- even, even less than that. So my point was, my thinking was, if Chinese economy slows down, that will drive the uh, demand for oil, you know, substantially. You see an amplified uh, effect if the Chinese, let's say the Chinese economy doesn't grow in double digits or 10%, but you're saying that yeah. it's so huge in terms of the trickle to, say, growing at 7%, if you trust the numbers, that there's an outsize effect on uh, the marginal barrel of crude. Exactly. So, and that 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 has that hasn't happened yet, or at least I, to be honest, I have no idea because, you know, I put very little trust in the numbers they report, and maybe this is the reason. Maybe this is the reason why the oil prices are declining. I don't know, but I we know. Here's what I know. I know that dollar is stronger, and oil oil you know has been stronger over last year, and oil oil is priced in dollars. I know that supply has been going up because of a shale you know, revolution in the United States, which at some point probably going to become shale revolution all over, all over the world. And I also know that, you know, that the demand for oil in a, in a, uh, in developed countries has been flat or declining. And the reason for that because, uh, our, you know, cars becoming more and more efficient. Uh, so what what I don't know is that is it possible that Demand from China is declining too. We just don't know that yet, and uh, so that's so I so I'm I'm negative on oil in the long run. But interestingly, a... interestingly, Vitaly, if you put these in your your crystal ball in your simulation, the confluence of the Federal Reserve still being at maximum easiness with uh, what I've I've noticed. I mean, we were surprised when we were seeing regular unleaded for two fifteen, and now you know driving to the studio today is a buck eighty. Some people are mm-hmm. saying maybe the the one handle, the ninety nine cent ga- gallon, is not impossible again. After all, the Saudis are not blinking. They you know, we've mm-hmm. we've we talked about this before. That could you imagine uh, a, a zero interest rate policy economy this stimulative with uh, oil prices tanking again? Isn't that a double shot that really gets the United States lifted again? Well, I think you know, low oil prices are net big net positive to the United States. You know, it's, it's it is short in shale producers, but it's really helping consumers a lot, and we are still a net importer of oil. So. Uh, it, it is a big positive to us consumers. We haven't felt it in retail numbers yet. And I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, it takes a while for consumers to realize that. Uh, because you know, you and I, you know, we watch the markets and we know what the oil prices are doing. Most people don't. So it takes a while for them to actually start paying attention that they're just, you know, they're, uh, you know, they spend half as much money on gas as they did in the past. And number one, number two, it uh, it takes a while for that to impact their decisions because they don't know if it's a temporary blip and they you know and then they can and they can start spending this money or they're gonna go back up. Um, so I think this is you know you know it probably needs to stay you know, down for for a while before we start seeing you know kind of the benefit from low oil prices in the in retail store numbers. You mentioned China earlier, and obviously China has been grouped with uh, the BRIC League of Nations. I think Goldman Sachs came out in 2002 
Uh, the economist mm-hmm. was a Jim O'Neill and said Brazil, Russia, India, and China will be the big uh, global investing theme of the next decade. And to a large extent, he was right. Obviously, Russia has been derailed in that story with um, uh, some of Putin's headlines over the last two years. Uh, Russia's stock market is, in many respects, the cheapest in the world. I think someone said it's at four times earnings, but it could get a lot worse. Uh, China is is weak. Uh, Brazil has been uh, taken down a couple of notches uh, since its economy grew at peak. Uh, what do you see happening in a situation where you know the big the big Jupiter in this equation, which is China? Suppose China does have a hard landing. I mean, when you close your eyes at night and you go to bed, how do you see that playing out in the United States? So the Chinese government then does what? Does it have to slash its purchases of United States debt? Uh, what does it do to keep the the Chinese street easy? Um, well, so let's you know, let's try to. You just understand what you know problems in China, you know, first. So, and this is going to sound very funny. And by you know by extension, I would say this sounds crude and mercenary to ask, but isn't that a net positive for the United States? Don't we go back to the situation like where we are? We are the 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 masters again. We are the the incremental bid on resources and food, and we get the the outsized benefit from prices dropping. You know, I, you know, maybe it helps our pride. I'm not sure it's going to help your paycheck or my paycheck. I don't think it's going to matter. From you know, you know, I, you, I don't get any extra. You, you don't get a. There are no monetary points from this. I think uh, it's if China, when China has a hard landing, it's not going to be positive for the world in general because it's going to take down with that a lot of countries. And it, you know, it already has to some degree. Like you know, think about Australia. You know. The, a lot of countries that basically benefited from Chinese ascent that uh, provided commodities. Yeah, someone you know, like a Peru, which is a copper-heavy economy, which is taking it on exactly. the chin because China is feeling weaker. Right. So exactly. So I don't think it's going to be positive. We're probably not going to feel it as much, believe it or not, because uh, we don't do that much. You know, our economy is not really tied to China very much. Uh, but I'm sure you're gonna see, you know, you know, company, very large companies, I don't know, IBMs and Hewlett Packards, etc., that sell a lot of goodies to China, you know, feel that. Um, so in the past, where being, you know, selling a lot of stuff in, you know, to China was a net positive, it's gonna become net, you know, net negative for a while. Uh, but overall, I don't think we're gonna feel it that much. Uh, I think the Australia is going to feel a lot more, and Canada is going to feel it a lot more, but not the United States. But Singapore, Korea, I mean, we did have a taste of things like this during the Asian financial crisis. China was not walloped as hard as the kind of the secondary and tertiary economies and tigers. But I do wonder, you know, and I would love in the future to maybe have Jim Chanos on the show, how this would play out. You know, China as a heavy, as, as en route to becoming the biggest economy in the world, how would it how would a, a uh, you know, would a hard landing really decouple from the fates of uh, the developed world like it had in the past? Or what would it look like real time? And uh, I, so really, I really wonder would, about that. Yeah, it, I think it would also, on a bigger scheme of things, it would lead to political instability. It would lead, uh, because, you know, the... You know the China, you know China and Japan or Korea compete with each other, right? And therefore, as a if Chinese currency declines, their goods will become more competitive with Japanese goods and vice versa. So it's probably going to lead to trade wars, and uh, you're probably going to see some tensions in that neighborhood as political tensions as well. So what we learned from uh, from what's happening in Russia is that economic instability often leads to political instability. So therefore, you know, if China, you know, if China going to have a hard landing, the world would not be safer 
at all. So I think we're going to see a lot of uh, negative political headlines coming out from that part of the world. And uh, what, what, what probability do you see of a Chinese hard landing with the inputs that we have today? I think today? it's very high. I think, I think it's very high. I mean, I think uh, kind of the black swan, you know, the black swan of, is not that uh, China is going to have a hard landing. The true black swan when I think about China is that is it going to have a political unrest? Uh, you, well, one thing you have to understand about China uh, is that the reason it has problems today because it did not have enough socialism. I know this is weird coming from me, but the the when United States when you lose a job you have a social safety net. In China, where people lose jobs, they don't have a social safety net. Therefore, Chinese government try to have growth at any cost. I see. How do you grow at any cost? You build. So therefore, they have a bubbles in the real estate, in, you know, in a residential real estate, commercial real estate infrastructure. But most importantly, they have a broken banking system. And, uh, you know, when, when, they, when, uh, when they have a hard landing, the banking system is going to have to be recapitalized. And our subprime crisis will look like a walk in the park oh boy. compared to what's going to happen there. So it's the question is, you know, it's very difficult to predict exactly how it's going to play out. Okay. But, but it's, it's fairly, you know, it's fairly easy to see that it's, you know, the world will not be safer. Hold that thought, Vitaly. We're going to be back with Vitaly Katznelson, columnist for Institutional Magazine. Stay with us. Full disclosure, thank you for joining us. Vitaly, uh, may I ask you a personal question, sir? Sure. <laughs> How many kids do you have? Three. Three. And roughly what are their ages? Uh, like one-year-old, nine and 13. So this is an important Rorschach, I think, for our listeners out there. And some people take offense when I cross that line and ask. But how are you positioning them uh, for the world of the next you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. A lot of this necessarily is T minus the time to college and the money you're going to need to send them to school. Maybe they're in a 529. Uh, but uh, also you need to kind of interpolate how uh, the situation is going to play out in the future. Do you, do you worry about a world of inflation or increasing political insecurity? Uh, how do you bring that back to what you're doing for them in their uh, investments? So all my kids are invested in stocks. And, uh, you know, even for my, even my 13-year-old who's going to go to college in four or five years, he's still heavily in stocks because, you know, because there are no, you know, they're, they're no good alternatives. And, the, you know, and I feel that the stocks he owns can be fine even if you have a market, you know, significant market correction. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, you know, stocks are still the best alternative. It's just, you know, I'm a stock picker, so there is a bias here, but I, I don't think all stocks are, you know, they, I think the stock market overall is overvalued, but you can still find, you know, undervalued stocks here and there, but it's becoming more and more difficult. So, so for people out there that don't have access to active management or, you know, you've seen obviously mm -hmm. a huge push into, into indexing with Vanguard mm -hmm. and the cut rate ETF companies being uh, really vindicated in the wake of the financial crisis. How would a, a, a parent that doesn't understand that granularity, I mean, you're, you're essentially saying to them that you're not thrilled about the stock market, but it's the best of not great alternatives in a, in a world that is totally inflated right now. So how would you 
what, what did, if, if you had to be pressed to give advice, and I, I know this always makes us uncomfortable at cocktail parties and friends uh, events and all, what would you say to the, the median mom and pop out there, say with a five-year-old child? Well, I would, you know, if, if, you know, I'm for, fortunately, I'm not forced to give uh, usually this kind of advice, but I would say, you know, if you pick a mutual fund, pick the one that has a value bias because those mutual funds historically have done better than uh, other mutual funds. Uh, value means basically those mutual funds probably going to own cheaper type of, you know, cheaper stocks. Um, that's That would be point number one. Point number two, uh, yes, indexing has done well. And when everybody talks about it, it's probably at the peak. Uh, so uh, I would be scared today to own an index. You know, to, like when I say index, I mean, I would be scared if I own S&P 500. Because I think the returns for S&P 500 probably going to be horrendous. You know, in the short run, I don't know, but in the longer run, they, you know, probably going to be extremely unexciting. So extremely unexciting. What? Where? There's always seems to be a value situation opening up around the world. Uh, do you do you mm-hmm. think that emerging markets have been disrupted enough to be valuable again? I mean, we, you know, you and I talked offline about Russia. Even in its worst mm-hmm. moment in in 1998 and in 1999, there was mm-hmm. light at the end of the tunnel. There were companies that had tangible assets that you could buy. Uh, for pennies on the dollar, if if you had any sort of visibility that yes, this is a, a this is something that requires a, a, a huge lining of the abdomen for people to do, but time and again we've seen these uh, disasters around the world come back. Sure, I mean to be honest, when you invest in Russia, you basically has to have a you have to have a very strong view on oil prices because if oil prices continue to stay low then Russian ruble is going to be getting, you know, get worse. So even if you pick a very good company that may survive and it's going to be fine, you still have a significant headwind, which is a Russian ruble. Um, but but yes, there are a lot of very cheap stocks in Russia right now. And uh, But you also have to deal with political uncertainty. So uh, every single time in the past, you know, the Russian economy came back. Uh, but... Uh, I don't, you know, I'll be very honest. I, I personally, I don't feel comfortable investing in Russia. And uh, so, but I don't need to. I mean, you know, we are buying companies in Norway that's been bid up or com- buying companies in Europe. So I don't feel I need to take this uh, extra layers of risk, you know. Well, then talk to me, talk to me yeah, about p- the S&P 500 index. For a lot of people like Jack Bogle, the, the pioneer of the index mm-hmm. fund, the founder of Vanguard, that that is sufficient for them. That uh, you know, uh, sorting companies by market capitalization. Where if you look at the S and P 500, the big players that move the needle there are disproportionately Apple, Exxon, mm-hmm. Microsoft. You you have a value tilt, and you're a disciple of, sure. of, of of Benjamin Graham, and you've read Warren Buffett. How would you tweak something like that? Do you believe that uh, are you do you think an S and P value index better represents it? Do you necessarily have to have an active manager out there? How does a person? How does a mom and pop out there start to come around to being a, a, a value investor? That's a good that's a good question. Um, I think the. Uh, well, you kind of suck me into talking about my book, but that's fine. Um, so my two books address the point of sideways markets. And basically, I'm going to give you a very quick overview. If you think about stock markets, what drives returns in the long run are really two things, earnings growth and what happens to price to earnings. Okay. Today, so if the earnings growth is going to be 
continue to be okay. Let's, so let's kind of put it aside for a second. What really is going to matter is the price to earnings. If the price to earnings is going to go up, it's going to help stock prices. If the price to earnings declines, it's going to hurt stock prices. Today, if you kind of normalize valuation of a you know of a US stock markets for extremely extremely high profit margins, the stocks are extremely extremely expensive. Historically, when the valuations were that high, uh, returns going forward either were flat or negative, and that that really just depending on your time frame. So with valuations today, as as price returns decline, if you want an index, you basically that's what you inherit in very high valuations because average stock is very, very expensive. That's why I'm extremely skeptical about returns for you know, S&P 500 index, index etc. So if you're, if you're mom and pop, I would not linear, I would basically uh, look for mutual funds or, val- or manager who owns a lot of cheap stocks, value stocks, because those stocks will usually do better, uh, you know, when, uh, when, when, when you have a bear market, is there, is, a there a market a, or, is there a preferable index that stands out for you? Is there a benchmark that in your mind that is much better than the S and P five hundred, especially if you have one that's global? Uh, yeah, I think you know if you look at MSCI World is probably you know a more appropriate index you know for most people because this way you, you don't just invest in the United States, you invest in Europe and you know you know developed countries as well. Um, and Europe scares me, believe it or not. I think valuations in Europe are, you know, are better than in the United States. So that's why we've been buying, you know, lately a lot more European companies than American companies. Um, but uh, my, the, the, the point is this: uh, if you're if you're mom and pop, I would, uh, you know, look for a value manager, you know, look for a mutual fund that you know is run by a value manager, or look for an index fund that has a uh, tilt towards value. And there are a whole bunch of them, but I. Can't give you give you a recommendation sure. from, from the top of my head. Now, what about your outlook for emerging markets? If the BRIC story is derailed, uh, certainly other ones keep chugging along. We've seen an argument that Indonesia is a better player, uh, you know, than Russia in terms of uh, uh, strength of institutions, uh, friendliness to foreign investors. We've seen some frontier markets really come to the fore. Uh, what, how are you? How are you positioning your children uh, in your portfolio and the advice that you give? for people to participate in the next consumer economies? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we, we, we just recently bought a stock, and I and I wrote about it, called SoftBank. SoftBank of Japan. And it's a, yeah, yes. And it's run by this absolutely incredible investor and uh, operator, Masayoshi-san. And uh, that, you know, he runs this company that basically owns one-third of Alibaba. All the cash flows they generate, they invest into China, you know, China and India. So that has been our play on uh, kind of emerging markets. Doesn't SoftBank uh, own Sprint in the United States? That's they own uh, Sprint in the United States. They own one third of Alibaba. They own one of the largest telecoms in Japan. They own uh, the the largest uh, Uber-like company in India. Uh, you know, they again they own one third of Alibaba. So if you think that even if China has a hard landing, they're still going to be probably going to shop in more and more on the internet, and uh, Alibaba benefits from that. So that has been our way to play emerging markets. You're not worried about internet valuations the world over, kind of the stuff that we're seeing here uh, with with Facebook being worth more than Disney. I think in some respects of of uh, the stats you see on um, 
you know, obviously Google's valuation tech, the Nasdaq is back near 5,000, at least, you know, nominal mm-hmm. levels that where it visited in the peak of the bubble in 2000. That doesn't worry you? I think it does. I mean, I think there are a lot of companies on Nasdaq that are overvalued, but there are still a lot of technology companies, believe it or not, kind of the old economy technology companies. I'm not sure if you, if that term has ever been used, but like, you know, the, the likes of Oracle and Cisco's, that are still inexpen- you know, uh, inexpensive and microns, they're still inexpensive. And you know, when I look at SoftBank, I'm buying the company, company today 50 cents on a dollar. So if you add up the assets they have at the market value, the company is worth about $55. Today you can buy it for 28. So maybe there is another way to look at it. Alibaba today trades at, I don't know, $80, $90. If I buy, you know, if I buy it at forty-five dollars or forty dollars, so that's my kind of a, you know, value investor's way to play on emerging markets. How would a situation like that hold out there? If, you know, you're obviously not the only person out there calculating that this is an opportunity. There are hedge funds out there. There are value investors. Sure. There are arbitrageurs. If if that was the case, and there wasn't something else that caused it to have its discount to liquidation, don't you, to a certain extent, buy that we live in efficient markets that this would not be sticking out there just for Vitaly Katzenelson to buy? That's a, good, that's a great point. Uh, first of all, I think markets are efficient most of the time, but not all the time. So opportunities are created uh, from time to time, and you have to be able to recognize them and capitalize on them. That's point number one. Point number two, if you were an economist and you walked on the street and you believe the market is efficient and you saw a $20 bill in Manhattan, you know, $20 bill, you probably wouldn't pick it up because you would have thought, well, if it was a real $20 bill, it wouldn't be there, right? Because somebody already picked it up. But if enough people feel this way, uh, that would create an opportunity. Uh, but Robin, we spend hundreds of hours trying to figure out why SoftBank trades at 50 cents on a dollar. And you know what? It just does. <laughs> and we couldn't, we, we I mean, in our research, what we try to do, we try to kill a company. We try to imagine all these negative scenarios. Okay, what if uh, yen, yen declines from 120 to 180? What if uh, Alibaba declines from uh, $80 to 40? And we tried to imagine all these different scenarios. We just could not kill the company. So uh, sometimes you just have to recognize that you've done all the research you could. You looked at all the possibilities and the company is just too cheap. And also in, another factor is that, you know, they own Sprint and you know, Sprint was in headlines, you know, as having problem, you know, Sprint has not been a great investment so far. And it's very possible that negative headlines from Sprint has been driving the stock down. But the way we look at it, again, it's a 28 hour stock. If Sprint stock goes you know, to zero, the impact on the company is gonna be maybe $5 a share, again, you know, the market value, you know, the value of all the assets is a $55 stock. So, you know, maybe that was, you know, what caused the stock price to decline recently. But, you know, no way, any way you look at it, when we try to kill the company, we can't. And if we can't kill it, we buy it. 
if we can't kill it, we buy it. It sounds very Soviet era, what you just said. Well, let me ask you, you know, also this is the company, the most talked about company in the world, which is a capital markets unto itself with $178 billion cash hoard is Apple. And you've written about them in the past. Is this, is this mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly it's, it's like a Rorschach. It's a kaleidoscope. You could look at it as a value investor. Carl Icahn has argued that it's woefully undervalued. Others out there look at it and say that it's a one-trick pony, that if it can't produce a killer iPhone 7, then the company's as good as Motorola, you know, in 10 years from now. Where do you where do you look at it? Aren't you fascinated by this this, you know, this massive balance sheet of theirs and this huge dilemma of like what the heck do you do with 180 billion dollars? When it was a 60 dollars, I wrote two articles for institutional investor making the case that Apple is too cheap and you know, we are buying it. Today, I don't know, 80 to 100% higher. I'm a lot less excited about Apple than everybody else. And we are probably close to selling it to buying it today. And uh, the point is that, you know, when everybody else get excited about the stock, this is when we probably excited a lot less because that excitement is already reflected in the price of the stock. So I look at Apple today and uh, I say, well, you know, I think it's a still great company and I still have a lot of the, you know, the iGadgets. And I think, and I don't think it's a one-trick pony. And uh, there's still a lot of competitive advantages that it has. It has an incredible ecosystem. There is a lot of recurrence to its revenues, etc. But at this price, I'm not very excited about the stock. And of course, the old Warren Buffett adage is that he says, I get greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And I wonder to what extent, if you could just quickly take us back to the depths of early 2009, where people were throwing in the towel on the stock market. How did you keep faith? What were some of the things that you were writing about? Did you look at it as a kind of a general generational opportunity that either you know all of us are, are going to be in a breadline uh, waiting for soup or the Federal Reserve in the United States is going to heal itself? Well, you know, I think if you made an assumption that we're not going to go back to Stone Age and then you looked at one company at a time, you look at Microsoft and you said, okay, in the worst case scenario, they're still going to be around. You look at the United Healthcare, and you said, "Well, I don't see how this company could die." So when you focus, when you talk about stocks in a kind of an ambiguous sense, it's very easy to get scared. But when you start looking at one company at a time, and uh, you say, you, know, you look through your portfolio, and you say, "You know what? In the worst case, we're still going to be just fine, uh, as long as you know we're still going to have an economy." You know, and if you don't have an econ- if you don't have an economy, if you're going back to Stone Age, none of those things matter anyway. Well, we're going to rewind uh, in, in closing and go back to the mid 1980s, where your wife, back then she was known as Rita, and her family came here to Central Virginia, and my mother-in-law helped resettle her family. And so, to to bring it back to the original intro on our show, is this is how she became a huge fan of yours. So go figure how differently the world has changed. And now you have three kids. You are an inveterate capitalist writing for Institutional Investor Magazine, being touted by Forbes magazine, a kid who grew up in in, uh, Soviet Russia, learning to hate the United States. And uh, all that happened uh, within less than 30 years, right? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on Full Disclosure, Vitaly. We're so glad you, you joined, and I look forward to having you on again. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Robin. Thank you. Full disclosure, we'll be back with you next week.